When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, happy Happy New Year, Joe. Not, happy not, New Year to uh, you, too. So Kim is not feeling well? Kim has got oh. some stomach thing, yes. Oh, well, probably the idea of talking to us probably didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But that's okay. I, I, I read her blog all the time, so I know I know what movie she likes. Yes. Cool. I've, I've been chasing her to come on this forever. She's uh, she is she, more she, She's too busy. She's writing big movies, you know? She was, um, I, I tell you now, she was like the last week. And the, the, every morning at six, six in the morning, we have coffee, I make it, and we sit down every day for the last week. What do you think of these five movies? I go, oh my God, what about this other one? What about this other one? I, I go, oh my Lord. You know, she never, she doesn't take anything lightly in terms of talking about cinema. You know? No, yeah. no, she's a, she's a died in the wall cinema. Yes, and it's uh, so so great to see you're you. so well matched. Um, it's great. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> so happy to see you guys together. See you working together. Uh, I I <clears throat> I told her I don't know if she passes on to you. I, well, I saw you at that screening briefly, but I was so knocked out by Nightmare Alley. I'm I'm such a noir fan, and there's so many great you know neo noirs over the past few decades. But to yeah. see a film that was just I mean the real deal, and I don't mean just because it was set in the era. It doesn't have to be set in the yeah, era, but it's so so pure. Um, and to yeah. see someone able to do it with, uh, you know, a budget and to be able to get the actors they wanted and to just um, and uh, to shoot it and to shoot it outdoors instead of yeah. building it on the stage. That must have yes. been quite an argument. That, that was a little crazy, <laughs> because because obviously, but the problem is, in the few times I've seen carnivals built indoors. They feel like sets mm -hmm. because yeah. you know the, the wind and the, the wind makes the the tarps the the tents breathe yeah. like a heartbeat or a lung and 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 you cannot you know you cannot court the accident of mist or haze or a little bit of this or that you know real sky yeah yeah no it's no, it's, it's, it's the, glorious the, the ambience of the movie is just incredible and something that I don't think you could. I, I, you certainly could never have done it at the time that the original movie was made. And I, I understand that you made a point not to go back and watch it again uh, yeah, before we did. you did this. Yeah, we did because, uh, frankly, what, by mere accident, the first contact with the story was the book for me. Mm -hmm. it, it was only because the movie was so damn hard to track down in the, in the 90s, in the early 90s. Yeah, you know, it was, there was a rights problem or something, and it was, it was yeah. gone for like a couple of decades. Yeah, there was either a lawsuit or a rights problem, yeah. And uh, I think that uh, reading the book, I thought, oh, my God, I, I imagined 50 delirious versions of the book. And then I saw the movie, and it was beautiful and all that. But I thought, of course, there is, there's room to be a little more... Well, it's it's as, it's as it's as dark as they would let you get in 1947. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, not that it's 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 a pretty unusual movie for that period. It's but, a beautiful uh, but, movie, yeah. and it's a nice movie. But your your movie is a completely different take on it, and I yeah. and I love them both. But 
Uh, I was really knocked out by your picture. I thought it was one of the best things you've ever done. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, and as it happens with Kim, before, before tackling it, we did the deepest dive on everything we could about Gresham and uh, how he wrote it, his biography. We basically are considering very seriously to write a biography on William Lindsay Gresham. Well, and that he died in the same room that he wrote the original book. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, that's going to be even grimmer than Nightmare Alley, isn't it? Oh, his it's life a, is, is really dark. Not I mean, a happy gonna, life. I thought Cornell Woolrich was like a guy whose life was too dark to make a movie out of, but Grisham might <laughs> be very hard to make a movie. I think there is, there is however, a, a moment of, you know, Grisham compared himself to a deep sea fish. Uh, he's a, 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 an artist when exposed to success is like a deep sea fish that explodes in contact with the air. But, but he did enjoy the, the money from the, from the movie. He did. He, was, he, he became a little extravagant, a little wacky in the way he spent it. So I imagine that moment of euphoria uh, was good. It was nice. He was, I remember a paragraph somewhere where they said he would like to roll, ride his horses in his stays. And he stayed with the bejeweled cow- cowboy boots. And that's, that's something I, I will never experience. Have you ever been to Joe's house? Because that's pretty much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also, I thought it was a terrible thing to say to a filmmaker, because of course, the best way to see these things is on film, in a theater. Uh, it's where I saw uh, your film the first time. Um, and I was very excited to see uh, the black and white version um of course now we're getting hit by this new wave of pandemic madness yeah, and uh, yeah. we're, we're kind of locking down here but um I'm, are you are you going to be um putting both versions out the black and white and the color version i i hope so i hope that they can be contained in the in the blu-ray you know yeah. both, uh, both of them and and the exhibit the exhibition on the on the big screen where we have one in the academy uh several in several of the art theaters and a couple of the big chains. And then the main thing, look, here, like for example, a few of those screenings are sold out. That said, with the pandemic, you sometimes have that and then you show up and there's a third of the piece. Right. It's really unpredictable. The reality is that all I want is to be able to experience it with an audience in black and white. Uh, it's a, it was a very, very nice experiment we did because we are directed the color in greens and reds and golds, all which translate in midtones that are very beautiful. Right. And, and, uh, and we, we basically did classic uh, cross lighting, you know, three-point lighting. We, we, we were very much lighting it like an old studio picture. And we were using wide, wide lenses, lowering the ceilings. There are several things we did that look, I think, that are more, you appreciate them even more in black and I, I think yeah, so but too. Is, is, yeah. is Kate Blanchett's office going to look as great as it does in black and white as it does in color? Because it is really great. That is the crux. I tell you, it's so funny. <laughs> the crux is the carnival, 10 times better. 10 times. The carnival is crazy beautiful. And Kate, because it's art directed in, in the golds, is the one that took the longest on the color timing in black and white to try to find every single nuance of those. Uh, of, of those mid-tones uh, and it's the one that of course is going to look better in color yeah. but the fact is I think uh, I think we did really damn good we spent uh, you know is ironic one of the longest most elaborate color timing jobs we can do is black and white 
if you have a native uh, source in color, because then you're, you're dealing with the contamination of magentas or cyans on the whites, on the, the blacks are not pure. So it takes a while, but it was fun to try. Oh, well, I, I cannot wait to see it. Um, and I also, speaking of Kate, uh, and then we'll get in because we, we're not supposed to be talking about your work. That's the whole, uh, That's okay. whole point of our show. We can, no, we can, we can just stop the show. <laughs> but but uh, have you ever, she is, there's so many great things in that film, but Kate Blanchett in a film noir as a femme fatale, I don't want to say it's a revelation because it's almost like the first time you see her, you go, of course. But I know you produce a lot. Have you considered maybe just once a year producing, if you don't have time to direct, a film noir starring Kate Blanchett? Maybe <laughs> the next 20 years. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We, the idea came because I developed a whole series for Kate, a whole, a whole noir series. Uh, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was set in L.A., uh, right in that transition between the movie industry and the aeronautical industry, there's a, a crimes uh, the, of, of a guy that is the uh, range and is trying to build the perfect woman. And it was this horror noir thing. And she was the central character. And uh, it never it never came to me, but, uh, but I stayed in contact. And of course, we wrote the part for her, you know. Yeah, she's incredible. Absolutely incredible. In a film full of amazing performances, she's yeah. unreal. And um, yeah, well, well, thank you. Uh, really, thank you. It was such thank a joy you. to see that. And I was looking at it just before I like to sort of like, you know, catch a little bit of the smell for the hunt, so to speak. Um, and uh, I popped on the Academy Channel about half an hour ago just to take another look at, at the opening of the film. Yeah. It's 200. How long is it? I, I thought it was about an hour and 45 minutes when I saw it. And yeah. I looked at the time of the thing and it's, it's like two and a half hours or something. 219. Uh, and I take great pride in saying 219 and not two and a half. Everybody says it's two and a half. I go, that was five weeks before I logged. Like, That's right. <laughs> it, it does not feel, it just, it, it blows by. Because I know Joe and I are both sort of the pathological devotees of the all movies must end by 92 minutes mark. Me too. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I, I tell you, I ha, I, I've been on record saying anyone that cannot keep it under two hours is a moron. And, I go, and you know what's, <laughs> what's interesting is almost all the movies, the, the, the movies that are being sold, sold as Oscar movies, they're, they're all incredibly long. I mean, they, 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 they run from two hours to two and a half hours to sometimes longer. Yeah. I drive my cars three hours. You know, and there's, there's frankly no reason for some of these pictures to be as long as they are. No, we, when we started, uh, I mean, we started with a screenplay that was 152 pages. And we said, look, this is the shopping list. We're going to make right. this. Let's get the onion, the tomato, the garlic, everything. And then we'll see. But the, and then the first cut was around 3.30. And, yeah. and I thought, I, there's no way I can get it under 3. Blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, so 219, uh, the fact is, because of the virtue of the structure of the novel, it's basically two movies. And if you don't, if you don't set up everything on the first movie in the carnival, uh, you're losing the flavors and you're losing the, the, the things that you're going to echo on the second half. So, you know, it is, uh, in theory, uh, one day I'll come back to it. One day, one afternoon, I look at it and I go, ah, this, here's the solution to me. There's the code. Yeah, but, no, but, it does but, not you know, feel like 219. Um, 
Uh, I was genuinely startled. I thought, is this a longer version than the one I saw? Oh, no, no. But um, yeah, no, it just blew by. Uh, well, great. And to anybody out there, if you have not seen it yet, and um, if you can just... see it in a theater, as difficult as that is. Yeah, well, yes. the, the, I must say the, the reality, the reality for any adult movie in theaters right now is you're going to be in the safest environment because <laughs> there's going to be uh, 15 feet between, between you and the next audience member at least. That's so, exactly. Unless uh, everyone who's hearing this goes at the same time, in which case, uh, the same in which case we we <laughs> to the same theater. Yeah, that would be, that yeah, would be we got the responsibility. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but anyway, well, Guillermo, thank you so much for the film, and thanks for thanks for coming on. We've been wanting to get you on for a while, uh, yeah. as well as Kim Morgan, who um, sadly is not with us today. But when she's feeling better, we'll get her back. Um, I, if nothing else, I just want to talk about Wicked Woman with her for about an hour and a half. Oh, and, and she wants to talk to you about. <laughs> for about two hours has she has she is that, that is that the next one you guys should do that one <laughs> no what I, I what i think is uh i mean i i we are writing uh another sort of dark uh, story that i've had for i don't know 25 years and and i think she's the perfect partner to to write it with and it will be again no no supernatural elements and it's sort of uh it's not a comedy but it's a, a really dark uh a uh, little story said in one office building. A lot of a lot of people die. It's uh, you know, and and uh, right now I'm going back to the fantastic. I, I'm finishing Pinocchio, oh, great. which will be ready somewhere in the fall this year, and and then I'm gonna do uh, one of the one of the bucket list uh, horror movies I wanted to do. You know. Oh, okay. You mean one of one of your original ones, mean or? No, oh, it's one one I've been pursuing since I was a kid, but I'd rather not. I'm gonna not okay. Yeah. We will that. Yes. No. If you say it, it, it uh, yes. Understood. This is the movies that made me with your hosts Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Some of our more keen-eared listeners may have figured out uh, who our guest is, but for the rest of you, we are thrilled to be here with Guillermo del Toro talking to us about some of the movies that made him. Um, let's let's jump into it. Uh, well, the the reality of uh, a cinephile is that you you know you and and when you direct movies, you, you people know you for what you direct, but right. what, what formed you can be completely different. Like. Uh, uh, noir or uh, hard-boiled writing have been as much part of my upbringing as horror was. And in fact, I, I thought for a while I would do uh, noir movies rather than horror and maybe mix it here and there, but it, those, that was my call. The other call that is very strong and is where I, I want to start is comedy. You know, but huh. that, is not, that is not uncommon, uh, yeah. as Joe will, <laughs> will attest. Comedy and horror... Uh, are like the sweet and sour and the yin and the yang, if, if combined skillfully, and yeah. and 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 both uh, both of those genres depend so much on the execution of punchline and the timing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Like you can tell in a theater, and I think they're the only genres you can tell in the theater if they're working. In Mexico, in Mexico, we 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 don't say when I was growing up, they wouldn't say the genre. They would say, "Let's go see a laughter movie." And let's, let's go see a scary movie. 
So if, if those things don't work, right. that is excluding itself from the genre in a way. Yeah. And, and, and I, I was uh, really taken by uh, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Laura and Hardy for me are uh, truly, as, as Kim would attest if she was here, they are uh, the, the holy duality for me. I, I adore them so much. Um, and, and then for me, one of the movies that made me want to make movies was Modern Times. And I know oh this, is the old, this is the old debate. We're going to go Rolling Stones or Beatles, Buster Keaton. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? But, but there's no reason why you shouldn't like both. Yeah. You know? And I think Modern Times is, and, and, and by the way, with, with Chaplin, obviously, so, much, so many of the gags were sometimes influenced or written by other comedians. Or, you know, Keaton conceived a few, and so on and so forth. But I think the execution uh, is pure cinema. You know, the, the way he plays with gravity or with flow or with... And, and for a Mexican like me, melodrama. Mm. Drama is, I mean, I, I, I come from a culture where if you can make them weep in a spy movie, a horror movie, <laughs> a family drama, you make them weep, you know? Yeah. It's, it's part, intrinsic part of experiencing a story. And I think... Uh, well, that's the thing, too. I find some Americans, because I, yeah, I started with Chaplin as a kid. In fact, Martin Himes was the first I saw it at Sweeney at the library, I think, when I was a child. My mom took me to and just boggled my mind. But I think, at least Americans, some people, I think, rate him less because of those melodramatic elements. They're, they're turned off somehow by them now. And the, I think it's the sentiment, actually. They usually accuse him of being sentimental. They say, I like Keaton because yeah. he's not sentimental. But, but, but Chaplin... Yeah. But, but Chaplin is too sentimental. I, I, I disagree. I mean, I, I defy anybody to watch the end of City Lights with a dry eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not possible. Oh my God, the kid. Impossible. Yeah, no, but, but I agree with that. In City Lights and Modern Times, uh, I, 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 I can't uh, not watch them and feel the emotion. And uh, somebody, somebody said something about Chaplin and Keaton. The difference is Chaplin wanted you to like. They said, and I thought, yes, I, I yeah. agree. And Keaton couldn't care less. Yeah, like, like just so stoic in more ways than one. But but I think that uh, the precision of both is exemplary. You know, I think yeah. I, and, and we were talking about horror and comedy being dependent on certain mechanics that need to remain invisible. The execution of their gags uh, is so apparently simple, but everything is. Uh, mathematically calculated, you know? Yeah. Uh, Keaton, Keaton doing a stunt or the, 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 the house going, uh, on, uh, falling on him and the exact opening in the window, which would have been a deadly, a deadly occurrence if it had failed by half a foot or is um, Chaplin executing um, the, the cabin gags in, in the gold rush, mm-hmm. you know, seesawing cabin. They are acrobatic acts of precision. There's nothing casual about it. And yet no. they can feel casual. Yeah. And he was such a perfectionist, you know, I mean, shutting down if he couldn't think of the idea, uh, or changing leading ladies several times on City Lights and ending up with the first one again. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it, I, I, I remember seeing The Great Dictator in a theater uh, in, uh, on La Brea Avenue when I first came to Hollywood. And, uh, 
I was sitting in the back row and at the end of the movie is this impassioned plea um, for peace. Yeah. And it's just a big yeah. of him and he's staring right at the camera. And when you're sitting in the back of a theater with a lot of people in it, he's talking to you. Yeah. And yeah. I, it was, I just remember it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had in the theater. And, I, and I've seen the movie on TV since then and I can get in touch with that feeling that I had. But it, there was something about the actual moment being there with all those people in a theater being talked to from a guy who's talking from 1940 at, yeah. you know, uh, about stuff that happened that he didn't want to happen, but then it happened anyway. Um, the, 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 the weight, the weight of that close up or the weight of that shot on, on a, on a full screen and a full theater. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, re I remember Mike Hill, whom we all know the sculptor of great monster tableaus and silicon and, uh, He's, he creates these beautiful things, and he made for himself uh, a giant Frankenstein face about uh, eight feet tall, uh, and I hang it on the balcony of my house, uh, in the internal balcony of my house, because he said, I, I created it so that people remember what it was to look at that face, that large, and not be something that you had already processed, that is not a serial commercial or... It's not a, a battery commercial is image or an image that has been domesticated, but but the, the full experience of Carlos's eyes and, and that size of the face. So yeah, I, I can I can imagine that is uh, I saw 2001, which was one of the formative movies for me when I was a kid. I saw it in a regular screen, and then um, in the in the late 90s or early 2000s, I saw it in the Cinerama Dome. And I realized I hadn't seen it at all. Mm -hmm. I realized yeah. that the, the pauses, uh, the silences, the, 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 everything acquired a completely new weight. And I remember also uh, uh, back in the day when they re-released Vertigo, which I had seen on, on video. And then I saw Vertigo on the big screen. And of course, the famous green fog moment comes. And I realized I had not seen the movie. At all, and this is this is something. It, it sounds and it's it very. There's a very good uh, possibility that we are old people now, uh, because we do sound like that when we say, "Oh, the purity of the big screen." But yeah. there is something real. There, I mean, I can. I, I remember watching uh, the man who would be king, the beautiful John Huston uh, movie, where where you see the thousands of extras over the rolling hills. And seeing it on video and saying, I, I, can, I can take it. I got to wait for it to be on, on the theater again. I cannot watch it like this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia is the one for me that, um, yeah, as much. I have, a, I have a magnificent HD projector and a 12 foot by five foot screen. And, you know, Blu rays look like 35 millimeter. And I've probably bought every version of Lawrence that has ever come out on video. Oh. And I've never watched them. I can only see that in a theater. It just—I don't care how big the home system is. It just—it's just not yeah. Lawrence of Arabia. If I'm not, and I just—I just wonder how many how many people aren't having that 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 experience that made us into such huge film buffs mm -hmm. of, of 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 you know t taking in all this material on a big screen, which was our preferred way of seeing movies. Right. Uh, and now, of course, with the video revolution and the fact that the quality is much better than it ever used to be, and the people mainly see through television, um, if there, if if 
the, the people encountering these movies today are ever going to have the affection and understanding of them that we did experiencing them in this bigger than life black void with other people around us i think i think it will be different but i do think there is a different type of attachments and and fortunately for us the 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 uh, repertoire theaters and the experience of uh, uh, seeing them on the big screen will remain like, yeah. like the, one of the movies i wanted to talk about today i saw projected on a white bed sheet in a cinema club in Guadalajara in the 70s is uh, Luis Buñuel, The Young and the Damned. Oh, wow. and, and I saw it on a 16 millimeter raunchy copy on a bed sheet. And I was absolutely, I, I've never been the same. But am I wrong? There's something about that film where that seems almost an appropriate way to watch it. Yes, you, know, yes. you know, in a way that maybe not so much with uh, Gone with the Wind. <laughs> or Lawrence of Arabia. Or Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I think, look, there, there, there is, I think that we're heading very rapidly to a place where repertoire cinema and special events will, will keep uh, showing these movies, but a lot of the experience is, is changing, uh, accelerated in, in a way that was impossible to conceive by the pandemic. Yeah. It's, it's just uh, 10 years of movie going went by. In, in in a couple of years you know yeah and here this is mostly a facetious question but you know honestly does anyone here actually know um if the experience of watching 2001 on an iphone is completely worthless or not well <laughs> I, 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 I don't know i i think that it is facetious and i don't think people do it i mean i think no, it's no. a it's a good uh, rhetoric piece but I, you know it, it is it is uh it is really, really difficult to imagine that yeah. much people that encounter it would, would choose, you know, you have to get to that. It's almost like in the condiments of the world, that is paprika. And you don't <laughs> want to paprika casually. You, know, you, you have to know how you want, why you want it and what you're right. from it, you know? I, I think it's a very, it's a loaded, uh, a loaded example, but I don't think necessarily one that is true. The relationship, um, that audiovisual narrative has with the audience has changed yeah. in, in, in ways that, uh, to me, uh, one of the things we tried to do with Nightmare Alley was to keep visually the scope and ambition visually of a movie on a, on a theatrical scale. We, you know, uh, and it, I, I really carefully approached the way I shot the scenes. I, I approached them um, not only with the lensing, but composition and rhythm and the way we stage them with the actors, uh, trying to make the cut uh, when it was absolutely necessary only and keep the integrity of the frame and, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and try to encompass that, that size. If you see Nightmare Alley in, the, in a small screen at the airplane, on the airplane, well, uh, that, that will happen. I mean, that yeah. will happen and you have to understand that as well. Yeah. But then at the same time, I keep thinking about all the movies that, that, you know, I grew up on and you did, I'm sure, and you enjoyed it as well, that we saw, you know, in black and white pan and scanned on yeah. old television sets, yes. you know, yeah. that, that uh, and somehow the magic came through, you know. Um, yeah. I, in fact, in fact, I have a few friends in, in Europe that miss the pan and scan. And so, <laughs> yeah. 
Like, well, I, I remember how it panned over there. Right. <laughs> I, I, I didn't like it, but me, I, 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 I cannot get to um, puritanical here because a lot of, like the first Hitchcock I saw was on TV. Right. The first time I saw, there was this beautiful program. You remember uh, the guy that directed Alucarda, Lopez Moctezuma, uh, he had a program on the weekends in the public uh, channel in Mexico where he showed the Golem, Sunrise, uh, Chaplin, Keaton. He showed all the great silence. Uh, and, and I was, I don't know, 11 maybe or 12. And I became addicted to silent cinema. And at that age, in, in a real little, little square TV, no larger than the screen of your computer. You know? And I, I remember seeing Greed and it hitting me full force even if even if the screen was small, really, yeah, yeah that's um, uh, yeah, it's amazing to me. And yet, I can't I can't go back and look at those now in that in that way. I can't of even course not. I can't even look at VHS anymore. It's uh, but. yeah, it, it is it is it is. However, for for example, to me, if I want to solve a problem and uh, and and there is, uh, I want to check uh, how Mitchell Lyson did it or how Weiler did it, and, and I want to consult like a, you would consult a book. Right. Then I can, I can check it on the computer screen and say, right. oh, mm-hmm. I see, you know, the, yeah. like there, there's, a, there's a, a certain shot in this movie or that movie that I want to break down into yep. elements. You, you then treat it as text. Well, it's because you already know what the effect was and you're just looking yeah. to see the technique of it. So it doesn't have of to. Course. Well, but that's why I don't think people are going to be watching 2001 on their cell phones because mainly yeah. they're not going to, they're not going to continue to watch it. They're going to, they're going to get bored with it. It isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work unless it washes over you. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw that on TV as a kid. Um, it's been on TV. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, but I, do I, want, I, I want to go back to Young and the Dan for a minute because you were, you were, um, I, I love that story. You were, you were how old when you saw it? I was, I was in, in my teens. It was, I think it was my first experience with a cinema club, which was something in the 70s that, I was very much a part of eventually. I was a projectionist and I was, I introduced the movies and, and handled the Q&A. And this was in the, the Goethe Institute of Germany in Guadalajara, Mexico. And I went to see The Young and the Damned because uh, I, I was becoming a more discerning cinephile, quote unquote, you know? And, and, and to me, what is impossible to evaluate is, uh, I was watching a Mexican film that was talking about a brutal reality because most of the cinema that you get exposed as a kid in Mexico, the golden era, would have a very uh, idealized patina, you know, uh, either uh, rural melodramas, uh, very pastoral, very poetic, or you would have a comedy or a, an urban melodrama that was light hearted. There were, of course, masterpieces, but this one, which for me remains one of the top three Mexican films ever made. And it was made by Buñuel in the same way that I think uh, only uh, uh, Capra, who comes from Italian roots, could reinterpret the American family the way he did, you know, and the American household the way he did. Buñuel came in and regurgitated the Mexican society and all its defects with that movie. And I, I came out in a daze because. I, 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 it's one of the few movies that I remember um, that and Taxi Driver at a very early age. 
saying, I want to do this. I want to do this for a living. And, and, and it was not genre films. It was, but there was the magical sort of will of Buñuel, that the surreal will of Buñuel, which uh, to me uh, has become a North Star in all the movies I, I do, you know, uh, all the way to Ned Morelli, in a way. And, but it must have helped too to that. I mean, did you recognize, you know, did, did it look like your life or not your life necessarily, but your world to see your world a little bit? Cause it shot, it was it it, shot it, in Mexico city, right? It and it didn't because look, imagine the shot with the construction, with, with the building that is being built and you see the shell of the building and the, and the blind man is in front of it. Uh, it's almost like a painting by Giorgio de Chirico, you know, it's completely surreal. And, and, and it's just that eye because the, the wonderful thing about the surrealism and the data is, is basically they say art lies in the eye of the artist. You can take something common and make it look almost magical. And this is something that is almost an article of faith, you know? Uh, and, and Joe, you, you, you have the experience with this. When you're shooting a creature um, or when you're creating a world, you know in your God when that creature is going to feel like a living thing and when it's going to be a rubber suit. And the difference, the difference is microscopic. And if you don't have that in your eye, in, in the gaze of the artist, same than the surrealist did, it doesn't work. It's extremely hard. I, I, I produce and I direct. And when I produce, sometimes I see somebody coming in that is not familiar with the how you need to heighten the frame a little to accommodate the creature. You cannot put a, a creature so easily in a, in a uh, Sidney Lumet movie because it is so much real world, you know? Yes, yeah. Unless that's a, like one of the experiments that I thought was fantastic is District 9, which mm-hmm. changed, changed that paradigm, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, um... Uh, I, the one that did, would you, would you think, um, would the host kind of qualify there? The, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, look, I, I think Bong is uh, the South the Korean cinema for me is just, uh, a fantastic thing that it's a gift from the heavens, you know, and the way they disarticulate the genres, all of them, the disarticulation of the crime drama with the memories of murder, yeah. uh, with the fallibility and, the and the involuntary comedy and the horror and, the, you know, they just despise it differently. And the host is dependent on that. And I think Buñuel came in and looked at Mexico. There's a famous story how um, uh, some of the most prominent intelligentsia in Mexico, when they premiered the movie, they wanted to lynch Buñuel. They wanted him, and they wanted really? him expelled out of the country. Because they, they said it was an anti-Mexican film. Really? And, and, and uh, you know, Buñuel in Mexico is a very interesting phenomenon because most people, when they talk about Buñuel, they talk about Buñuel in the hardcore surrealist films or the later period where he was shooting in Europe. But his period in Mexico is, I think, in my opinion, the most interesting because he, he was limited by a structure. He was working in commercial cinema. Mm-hmm. They, they um, you know, the Exterminating Angels, right, yeah. the Desert, The Brute, Susana, you know, all of them are really a, a, a rehearsal of a crime. There's so many great movies he did then. Mm. 
Um, oh, it's, it's so I just I, I love that experience though. I, I seeing that on the sheet in Mexico would have been amazing. Oh, and uh, the, the 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 wife of a very prominent artist, Himbonuel uh, used to say, went at him with her fingernails aiming for his eyes after the premiere. <laughs> she had to gouge his eyes, and 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 uh, and you know, eventually he became. Uh, so in love, he, he fell in love with Mexico so deeply, and uh, and uh, it was because of Mexico that he could return to Spain with Viridiana. And I remember talking to Carlos Saura, uh, who was scouting with Buñuel for Viridiana, and he said that there was a moment in which they were in Monegros, which is a desert in, in Spain, and it's very much a landscape of almost lunar brutality. It's like a moonscape. And Buñuel said, can you stop the car? And he got out of the car and he stared at this austere, uh, brutal landscape with, with longing, uh, like uh, wistfully, you know, and, and, and he teared up. And, and I thought that was very moving because he's not, he was not watching a sunset in a beach, but he was watching the very essence of his soul, right. this, this absolutely hard, soul of, of, of a man that was, that looked at the world in, in a unique way. Buñuel used to say, I remember, this is a great quote, he said, I'd rather take an evil man than a casually uh, charitable one. Uh, you know, he says that, that uh, he says, charity is an offense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Well, you also, you mentioned greed earlier too, and I know that was one of the ones you want to talk about, was that... Um... Where, where, where did you first see that? Well, which, and, and how much of it? Oh, that, yeah, then there's, yeah, yes. Of course. <laughs> no, I saw, I saw the, the, you know, it must have been in the 70s. And I, what, what I saw was the incredibly truncated version. But it has also this uh, austere, very much so Prussian cruelty, <laughs> you know. And, and I admire that sentiment. I think that... Uh, whether it's Jonathan Swift or Buñuel or, or von Stroheim, I admire very much when uh, somebody tackles a parable of brutality, you know, a very brutal parable. It can be also Sunset Boulevard, whatever you want. But I, I love this when, when a piece of material be, can be taken from reality or realism and taken to the realm of parable. And, 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 and this is very ingrained in, in my lapsed Catholic self, you know, and, and I attempted with things like Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth and this and that, and it's, it's just ingrained. There, there needs to, there is that need. And, and what I was fascinated by on Greed is it was the compositions and the, the, the bold uh, depth of the film and, and, uh, and, and the close-ups. They, there's something about a silent film close-up when you're looking at a face that is unvarnished by makeup or gauzes. They have, a, a, and it can be anything, Potemkin or it can be greed. They have a, a, a vibration, like a vibrant, sweaty, poor, uh, humanistic texture, you know? I, I just, I just, I don't think there's, those are close-ups that, I don't think they're reproducible um, with modern stock or digital technology. There's something, there's an alchemy between the human face 
and the light hitting the, the silver grain that, that I, I, I don't, uh, magic happens, alchemy. And, and not necessarily for beauty, for raw reality, you know? And I think greed impacted me because of that. It was uh, like, a, like a Sinclair Lewis, uh, like, 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 a, like a real, uh, 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 how, how can I say, raw portrait of, of human emotion and, and, and base, base, base emotion. Yeah, no, there is. There's something to, uh, yeah, I, I, you're, you're putting it much more eloquently than I could, but especially, you know, yeah, I think back to Potemkin, there's, there's close-ups in that that somehow look like they were shot yesterday, and yet they're clearly from 100 years ago. I, yeah, I can't. <laughs> but, but that's, there's something, there's something, and, and I, again, it's not casual that, that, that a close-up from Potemkin is what inspired largely Francis Bacon to seek his screaming figures is, you know, is Monkian, you know, is really like seeing Edward Monk or Bacon or, or there's something painterly about the silver uh, being exposed to the, to the light. I think that the phenomenon of chemical, the capture of the light chemically, and I'm not a film purist, just so we mm -hmm. understand each other. I'm not, I, I shoot on digital. I'm happy to shoot on digital. I think with, with good lighting, we can reproduce a very beautiful cinematic look yeah. uh, in the movies that we make. But I'm talking this co concretely about that, the, the, the explosive <laughs> nitrate that was used in silent film. I don't know. There's something alchemical that, that gave it beauty. And I don't know how to explain it otherwise. Yeah. No, you're, 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 I, I love the way you're putting that. Um, yeah, it's sort of, it's also, it's making me think of Van Gogh. For example, I remember the first time I was ever in a room with an actual Van Gogh where instant you're in a room with one, you understand why he ate his paint. Yes. Yeah. No, you're, 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 you're completely, I, I remember talking to John Hurt, who was somewhat close to Francis Bacon. And he said the, the, one of the greatest paintings Bacon ever did was his, his painting studio, which was about two, two inches deep in, and paint on the floor. Right. And, I, and I remember, obviously, as you say, the difference between seeing a Van Gogh in the flesh or reproducing, even in the most beautiful photo reproduction. Can't be done. It cannot be done. Because yeah. the thickness of the paint, the, 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 the brush stroke, uh, which literally has a depth yeah. and a thickness, you know, and this is what happens to me with silent cinema. I, I, I think is. It's almost to me it's it's a it's, it's an ex, it's a uh, an extinct species. Silent mm -hmm. I don't I think it it has a lot to do with the movies we do today, but it's almost like a different branch of evolution. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely true. Um, well, let's let's do another one. Uh, what else? What else did you bring us? Well, I, uh, obviously the, the the cliche with me, which is a religion, is Frankenstein. You know, and that, that is, I mean, my, my uh, allegiance to, to that film and the book, you know, they, and I, I think that they, there's nothing more intimate for me than that. And, and, and by this, I don't mean faithfully represent the book, which the movie does not do yeah. uh, and does not need to do, by the way. I, I, I think if you want to experience the book, read the goddamn book. 
you know, if you want to see a riff on that by somebody that has a, a, a kinship with it, as, as Whale did, then go to that. Because the, the movie is, is, an, is an interesting movie. And, and, and I think uh, this comes right after he shot Waterloo Bridge. The, the 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 brutal version of Waterloo Bridge, not the later version. Uh, you know, where if you have, if as anyone listening to this have not seen James Whale's Waterloo Bridge, I, I have not. I don't know. Oh well, you should prepare for one of the most devastating endings in the history of cinema. And and he he was he was intrigued by the material, not casually, because he was given a choice. He said they they said, what do you want to shoot? And and he chose Frankenstein, which was being you know, which was already in development. And his affinity for the material and uh, the fact that I think Whale uh, himself hid in, 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 in a construction of who he wanted to be. You know, he came from a, very much like a, a lower class uh, in England and he affected an accent and affected an education and affected a, a posture of a gentleman. And he basically had created himself and, and, and at the same time uh, tried to hide parts of his own history. You know, it was really interesting, this outcast empathy for the monster and, mm. and feel it. For me, um, there is, you know, the, the, the statue of Bernini's um, Ecstasy of St. Therese, you know, and, and when Karloff crosses the the, the threshold for the first time, and you see those eyes, those are the eyes of a saint in ecstasy. Uh, and at the same time, a, a, a non-living entity. And at the same time, uh, uh, a, a, a supernatural entity. That, like I remember uh, there is this thing called uh, the Stendhal syndrome, right? When yep. you're watching a painting or a work of art and you go into tremors. I remember clearly being a kid and seeing that shot and I, I almost went into seizures uh, in how I just emptied my entire soul to that, to that creature. So it's, it's, I cannot emphasize an, uh, enough how much this movie means to me. Uh, one of my monster houses is completely dedicated to Frankenstein, you know, and, uh, and, and the idea I have of it is, almost absorbed in my, my DNA. Well, he was coming off of uh, not just Waterloo Bridge, but Journey's End, which was his, his yeah, first picture, both, which yeah. has also got a devastating ending, and is what I, was where Colin Clive came from um, to play Dr. Frankenstein was because that was his first picture for a company called Tiffany, which was a very small company. And unfortunately, the movie, which I think is a, a terrific movie, is sadly unavailable uh, for reasons of, uh, I don't know why, it just is. I, I've talked to Criterion about trying to put it out, and and they can't find any materials on it. And it's, mm. But it's, it's it's James Wells' first movie. I mean, it's, it's and it was a, it was very well reviewed. I mean, it really kind of put him on the map and got him the Waterloo Bridge job. And that that was that was the the film version of the play that he did as a, both a production designer and director, right? Right, right. And 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 it, and I've heard the the story that. Uh, 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 Clive started drinking on Frankenstein because the whale needed him to be loose enough for the, the scene where he says, it's alive, it's alive, and I know what it is to be a god. Uh, have you, can you confirm I, that? I, I've heard that story, but I heard it about 
about uh, Journey's End. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, because he's also high strung and 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 that that supposedly Wales had to get him drunk to get him to this to emote this ecstasy thing that he would get into when he was acting. Um, but uh, I, he's really a fascinating filmmaker, and he had a very rough time. And his 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 movie, The Road Back, which was supposed to be as this big uh, you know sequel to All Quiet. Uh, got got caught in uh, politics and uh, Universal was terrified that the Germans were going to stop running all their movies and so they eviscerated it. That's why uh, 1937, right? Yeah, and I think it's been, it was recently run somewhere like the Museum of Modern Art, they found the, the original version of it. Uh, and so hopefully that will make its way. But because it was such a huge flop, it was had a terrible effect on his career. And, um, and uh, I think his personality didn't help. That, that was that was the that was the movie that uh, the the German consulate uh, uh, tried to break relationships with America, right? Yeah, yeah. The was, portrayal <laughs> of German the German people. Film. Yeah, so they yeah. had to reshoot a lot of it with Andy Devine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and two, two years later, <laughs> things changed. Yeah, no, but but I think I think that um, as you say, his personality uh, did not help. I mean, it was. Uh, much as Karloff was a gentleman and incredibly nice in his memories of everyone, uh, they did not, they, they had a, a very tense relationship. Well, because I well was jealous, I think, when Karloff started to get so much attention. Uh, Karloff, Karloff, after all, he's just a truck driver. Yeah, know? which, which, he, which <laughs> and curiously enough, Karloff did have at least some uh, of the uh, sort of English higher class blood and origin. That whale would have loved to to have, mm -hmm. but and and look in my book, if Karloff is, uh, has been idealized in my mind as the perfect gentleman and a saintly figure, so I <laughs> I, I just uh, cannot. I, I never heard much to the contrary, you know. And no. you know, when, with Peter Bogdanovich passing away, there's been some more attention on targets and. Obviously, you know, Karloff is playing Karloff, and uh, it's pretty apparent that he's a, that everybody loves him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. By the way, I'm thrilled to say I just took a quick look um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you can get this at Movies Unlimited, our sponsor, but uh, I already own it. That Waterloo Bridge, the James Whale version, is on the Forbidden Hollywood collection from Warner oh, Archive. Yeah. It's on the very first volume, which I own. I've just never seen this one. So I'm um, watching that forthwith. Oh, yeah, let's just take advantage of this moment to uh, tell you that, aside from these films, a lot of the movies we discuss on the show, um, including this one with Guillermo, uh, are available at MoviesUnloaded.com. They're the expert on movies since 1978. You're going to find thousands of titles to choose from, from classics, hard-to-find titles, and new releases, too. Um, and, you know, uh, the great thing with physical media is that stuff comes with extras, with outtakes, with interviews, with commentary tracks, all the good stuff that you don't get on streaming. So support our sponsor and be good to yourself. You can click on the Movies Unlimited banner on the Trailers From Hell website uh, and buy the stuff there. Um, and remember, shipping is always free on orders over $50. So check them all out at MoviesUnlimited.com. Uh, let's get back to talking to Guillermo. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's curious. It's like a very, I mean, I think uh, Whale, um, funny enough, had a very, uh, again, this sardonic edge that we were talking about earlier on Strohheim and on Swift and all that. Uh, Whale had a, a very sardonic edge, uh, which for me is perfect when when he does something like The Invisible Man, which is a- absolutely one of the most deranged and fascinating. Well, that was so much, yes. <laughs> because he, he knows how to mix horror and humor, and sometimes within the same shot. Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, All Dark House for me is mm. funny and horrifying mm. within a second. Yeah. 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 I, I'm either shivering uh, or or laughing, and and I think I think that but the, is somebody that I I, I would be curious uh, to if if there was a stronger link to him like you were talking about Peter Bogdanovich, who who I grew very close to, and and I would interrogate unseasonedly uh, like about everybody that he ever met he knew everybody. yeah yeah and everybody that would take and, a lot of time and 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 basically uh, other than curtis harrington who passed yeah. there is not not much link to whale left like the, no no firsthand links to yeah. whale and do you you knew curtis right Girl? oh yes i knew curtis yeah so uh, and he was very close to to james whale Yes, and he was he was close to a lot of figures from that era. And uh, every so often, if you would see him at a party, and somebody like John Abbott would be talking to him, you know, I mean, he he had he had a uh, had a lot of connections to old Hollywood. A fascinating guy, Will, and and, and I think uh, uh, for me, Bride and uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein uh, are. Uh, you know, I, I look. There, it takes a certain love for you to live with the with the life size figures of a movie, <laughs> and I yes. do live. With that. I live. <laughs> I I talk to I talk to uh, all the freaks of Jen, uh, of uh, Todd Browning's freaks every day, and I share the house also with with the creations of whale. They they're. And I, and I really enjoy it. I, I must say, people think I'm making this up, but I, I do uh, speak very briefly to them <laughs> at one point or another in the day. That's because they've been speaking to you for years. For years. And, 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 and the reason for that, uh, Joe, and I, I've said this in the past, so I will be brief, but it's because they revealed a whole, uh, a whole world that, I, that was not contained in the education and the and what was expounded as the good manners and the, right. the way of the world in my family. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't reconcile what I saw the adults do and what the adults told me you should do. And all of a sudden, horror showed me, oh, there's this, this other side, and monsters will never uh, present themselves as anything but what they are, and I kind of like them more. I thought oh, these, these, are, these, these guys I can get to know, you know. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. How how often um, how often do you watch Frankenstein? You know, there was a, there was a time where I would watch it. Uh, I don't know three times a year, and, I, mm-hmm. and uh, now now it depends on who wants to go for the right parts of it. At least eight times a year, but not the whole. 
not the whole movie. And and uh, I realize in in many ways that my problem is this. My problem is the only available cut is where he throws the girl in the river, Maria, and and I can't take it. I can't watch the I can't watch that moment. Uh, obviously, it's a moment that Karloff did not want to shoot. Uh, he refused many times. Well, made him do it. Uh, but and that's what Karloff did. The the following moment where the monster is sort of conflicted and full of pain and disoriented. But but I, I saw obviously the original version, the original release, where where the ellipsis of the monster. Uh, Realizing he has no more flowers leads to the the cut of the father with the body of the child, yeah. which was, in my opinion, far more impactful. Yes, well, it's also it also implies yes. that it's something even worse than murder. Yeah, you, you, you don't know what happened, but it's is 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 absolutely uh, more terrifying. But what it says in the script is that he puts a, he puts the kid in the water, thinking she'll float, mm-hmm. and she and she sinks. And, and that was the way it was written to be there. But Whale wanted him for some reason to throw her in. And that's what Karloff objected to. He didn't object to doing what was in the story, but he thought that the way it was supposed to be is that the, the, pick up the child gently and put her in the water and then watch her sink. And then be surprised when she doesn't come up, which I think is, is better than throwing yeah. her in the in Yes. The yeah. Yes. yes. And, and, and I, I think that, that uh, and, and that's why, that's, uh, that's why I own a miserable Vetermax version of Frankenstein. <laughs> and that's why I own a Vetermax player, because <laughs> the only way I can watch it is in that Vetermax horrible copy. No, surely, uh, I don't mean, I don't want to count its piracy, but if you own these anyway, you could, you could cut that scene out and not have an input. I mean, it would be, uh, you could do yeah, the exact yeah. cut they you do. You make a very good Blu-ray copy and just leave that scene out. There's a great idea there. I, I, yeah, I, I can do it on iMovie while we're talking. It's, I, um, think, I think I'm going to do that. Because it is. Am I right? It's, it's, they literally just snipped. It's not yeah, like... That, no, it's, it's, a, it's a hard cut. It's got a big chunk in it, you know? And um, that's... Yeah. It was like... It was done in 1938 when they reissued the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not joking. I could have it done by the time we're finished talking. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like to get it on Blu-ray, please. <laughs> Um, well, let's let's move on to uh, what what else do you want to tell us about Guillermo? Well, I, I look the, the the movies the movies that uh, form you are, are they can happen at, at any time. There's a, there's a movie that for me happened in the in the perfect way, which was uh, Duel, mm. you know, because oh. I saw Duel at the drive-in. Oh wow! Oh, <laughs> fantastic! Couldn't, couldn't have been better. Uh, than to see it at the driving, and and when I was a kid, the driving meant you got the best chocolate milkshakes in the world. That I still to this day I've never in my imagination has perfected them. And you got a a, a, a really nice hot dog with beans, which is <laughs> it was it was called a pachuco, a pachuco uh, hot dog, and and then you came out of the the back of the station wagon. You put your foot on the roof of the station wagon and watch the movie. And it was, it was, we used to love because we went in our pajamas oh. to drive. So we <laughs> were in our, in our flannel pajamas, uh, drinking chocolate milk and, and a pachuco, uh, eating a pachuco. And, and 
the, the movie's playing on the car and it was, uh, because it was released like a feature, not a TV movie. It was released like a feature in Mexico. And, and uh, when, the drug, when the drug goes down at the end into, into the abyss, into the, into the precipice, uh, all, the car, all the cars started honking. <laughs> Fantastic. Of it course. was like, a, like an applause, but, yeah. but with <laughs> and, and, and I remember it's one of the times where I've had the most fun in the movie. And, and that movie to me, which I watch it at least twice a year, uh, because I, I've always, I always try to, and I, and I have talked about it with uh, Stephen. I've said that you shoot this way, that way, that way. Because it's shot uh, before the reshoots, which added a little bit of running time. The original shoot was, I think, uh, ten or eleven days, mm-hmm. and 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 I, I and I I had to. How the hell did that happen? How how was that done? Uh, and 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 uh, as a aspiring filmmaker, later I I used to break it down and say, well, uh, they probably did this in the beginning. This is part of the reshoot. Blah blah blah. And and well. The shorter version is what we were all familiar with because that was the way it premiered on ABC because it was an ABC TV movie and it was 74 minutes long. Uh, and then when they wanted to release it as a feature, they would go, well, it's too short. So then they, that's when they went back and they added stuff. I, I think the original version is better. I think the, the additions are, they don't hurt the movie, but I think the movie is better and linear and plays more effectively at its original length. That's just but me. What, was the phone call to the wife in the original version? No, I don't think so. Because that's that's the addition that helps. The one, the one with the with the foreground vignette of the washing machine. Mm. I think that's a huge addition to the character of of man. You know, I think I think that adds a great because ultimately, uh, I mean, and and also when I was when I was a kid, Richard Madison and and uh, Charles Beaumont and. Everybody was uh, so, it was a very solitary uh, knowledge. I, I love these authors and not many people in Mexico would engage with, in conversation about Richard Madison with you. But uh, I, I read the original story and, and obviously Madison dealt with masculinity in really interesting ways like the shrinking man and, and uh, duel, which are both about, about uh, uh, identity, masculinity, and and it's not subtle. And that phone call, uh, the, where he calls his wife, is so uh, clearly defines where he stands uh, in his own perception. Uh, you know, and and he reverts to being a savage at the end. Uh, it's a really it's a really interesting metaphor of of modern man having to revert to a state of savagery to conquer. Uh, a beast, which is that trunk, and and the fact that the uh, it's called duel is so simple. Like I remember a Frederick Brown story that was turned into a Star Trek episode, but very different, called Arena. Yeah, know, such a such a good story. That short Frederick Brown was specialized in sometimes writing stories that were only half a page long. I mean, in I, Nightmares and Giesenstacks has got so many great stories that are that are so short you can't believe that the story's over. But it actually it works fine. And he was he was so he was such he was like the O'Henry of sci-fi. He always had that Frederick Brown twist. Uh, very often the twist in the last uh, two paragraphs, you know, 
Uh, and they didn't, they didn't he write the shortest uh, horror story ever, which is The Last Man on Earth sits alone in a room and uh, there's a knock on the door? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. That was the shortest. And I remember A Nightmare in Yellow. What a, what a great story. And if you guys don't know that story, please, by all means, uh, seek it because it has a fantastic ending. Anyway, the duel was. Um, loom very large for me and, and and the craft of it loomed very large for me as a super eight super eight filmmaker mm, sure not, yeah. that I, not that i never even did anything but that would feel uh, like something because how, how old were you you were a teenager right Young. i was i was no 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 when i saw the i was a kid I oh yeah okay because that that would feel like the kind of movie yeah yeah i grew up with super eight too where you would go like i could do something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a guy in a car it's, it's such a it's such a also the rhythm the rhythm of the cutting in that movie is is absolutely perfect and it's and the score by billy goldberg uh who who also was a a guy i love from uh, his ties to night gallery mm -hmm. oh it was i mean that for me for me, Night Gallery is to, for what, but for other people, is Twilight Zone. Now, because it hit me right on the spot uh, as I was growing up. And I loved horror more than I loved uh, sci fi. That's fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I remember as a kid kind of thinking that show was, was, was not, not so much, you know, and, and then yeah. uh, going back later and, and seeing some of them and some well, of the first two seasons, the, 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 the first season is much better than the next season uh, yeah. because they changed producers. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think that uh, Serling wasn't used to being rewritten. Uh, yeah. And, oh, and it was always he was doing his own stuff and that was it. And yeah. he had all his friends, he had Matheson and Beaumont and all those guys coming in to, to work on it. But uh, in this thing, um, the fact that they were, there was no set time for these pieces. They were sometimes right. were they really short. Sometimes they were a little longer. I mean, there's some really, really good night galleries, but I, I, I think overall, I prefer the Twilight Zone. Jack, Jack Laird uh, did both a lot of damage and a lot of good. There, there was, there was an almost, there was some of the stuff looked its budget and some of the cruder, humorous episodes were not good but then there there are a few of them that are almost miraculously dark and profound and and uh you know and there's a, a couple only that have the stature of the twilight zone uh classics but but when it happened it happened really deep for me yeah no i agree and that was the same studio that made thriller and they had the same issues with thriller which was that sometimes there were horror stories and sometimes they were Suspense stories, and the and it really they didn't get their groove until they started doing horror stories, and uh, and and the it was all shot in the same lot. I mean, you can actually see the same sets in yeah. both Night Gallery and yes. Thriller. That is that is that is true. But there were a couple. I just remember some of the um, uh, Richard was um, is Richard Thompson from uh, Richard Thomas from uh, yeah. the Waltons, the, uh, the, the, the Sin Eater, the Sin Eater, which is performance in that is unbelievable. And and that's so that's, that's like a Mario Baba, yeah, it's like yeah. a Mario Baba parable. Yeah, like a Mario Baba film in twenty two minutes or something. It, it, so. it reminds me a lot of Black Sabbath, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has that that Verda like atmosphere, which. Which also came from precarious budget, but uh, you know, I, I think I think 
there is there is certain uh, filmmakers or certain projects that benefit from the theatricality and the artificiality of a low budget. It's rare to find them, but but sometimes it, it almost makes the effect uh, more profound. Mm-hmm. These things don't feel real, you know. Yeah. They feel. Uh, I don't know if you know the the the, the Italian movie, uh, uh, the Arcane Sorcerer, Il Arcano Incantatore by Pupi Avati. I don't know. It's, Pupi Avati, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the Barry Lyndon of the supernatural horror. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> it, it benefits from a larger budget, but, uh, but then you can go a, a, a lot uh, more into the Baba world of minimalistic, but beautifully composed uh, horror. Mm, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, well, what's, what's, uh, uh, what's next? Well, the, you know, I, 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 as I told Kim, what I wanted to talk is about moments in which I've come out of a movie and I, I felt uh, completely transformed. I mean, there was, there, there's been a couple of instances of that. There was, uh, I saw Brazil in a, in, a, in a multiplex, in a shopping mall in, in San Antonio, Texas. And I was the only person in the theater. and. And I came out into an, a completely empty parking lot covered in fog. And, and I thought something genetically has changed. Like, uh, like certain filmmakers deposit on you something. You, you cannot identify it. And I cannot identify it for the life of me. But, but uh, Terry Gilliam, Early Terry Gilliam, Time Bandits, yeah. Brazil, Munchausen, something of the heavy metals in that formula deposited in my blood. I, I, that doesn't mean I try to do them or that you can see them on my movies, but they're part of my being. Yeah, no, they inspire you. They keep and I, I remember Brazil was like a nonstop um, parade of uh, invention and erudition. You know, you could feel the uh, the the legacy of uh, German cinema, uh, you could feel expressionism. You could feel, uh, I mean, I don't think wide-angle lenses uh, could be used more expressively. You could feel the 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 the, the legacy of Mad Magazine. Yes, uh, yes. Everything was like a Will Elder page, where there's not a there's no space where there's nothing happening. That's something happening. Yeah, yeah. We had, we had uh, the actor Clayne Crawford on last year who talked about growing up in, I think, Alabama. And he had somehow seen 12 Monkeys as a kid and loved that. And his mother had bought him a VHS of it that came in a, it was a double. And it came to 12 Monkeys in this movie called Brazil. And <laughs> he had no idea. He didn't know from Terry Gilliam. He just knew he loved this movie with Bruce Willis. And talked about it. finally one day he decided to watch this Brazil thing. And it just, you know, with no expectations no understanding at all he was not a cinema you know he's not a cinephile he did not think about terry gilliam and to sit down and watch that movie completely cold with no idea what's coming <laughs> just and, and again when we talk when we talk about it i i realize also that there is that that cynicism that that not not cynicism that's sardonic the, 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 you know there's no one bitter more bitter than a dissolution romantic Yep. You know, and I think Terry has that. Well, he's got Terry a lot to be that. bitter about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but 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 I think there is that the level of invention that comes from 
some sort of dissolution romantic rage, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes it makes it all the more poetic for me, and all the more uh, tender and and heartbreaking. You know, he he has these delicate moments that just float in the air, like no not not trying to make a pun, but him flying through the clouds. Is I get transported, you know, and 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 then the modern world with all its inefficient. Uh, baroqueness is uh, is in contrast with that simplicity. I mean, it's. I think that uh, when Gilliam is given the resources and let alone, which is rarely, he just reaches a pinnacles of art that I that touch me very deeply. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I um, uh, you were talking a little while ago about somebody taking a swing at Bunuel and my mind went then to, uh, I, I was at a screening at the Toronto film festival when he premiered Tideland, yeah. which, um, I, is a film I find really interesting, but I remember the thing that really, I, I've never been more impressed with a filmmaker that he made that film. And then he showed up at the premiere knowing full well that, you know, by the time the movie was over half the audience was going to want to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> Cause well, that movie enrages people. <laughs> That, that that happens to me with a movie that I love a lot, uh, love profoundly, which is uh, Ken Russell's The Devil. Oh, you know, because uh, seeing it in a country like Mexico, which is <laughs> largely largely Catholic, and uh, and I remember the reactions to that movie. There was in the cinema club, some people saw it sort of in in an almost uh, underground movement, you know, being. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I still think is the art direction by Derek Jarman is phenomenal. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I guess I got I, I'd forgotten about that. I may have traumatically erased it because I, I, you were trying for a while to get Warner Brothers to release that. Um, yeah, and they, they, I, it was one of those things where I thought if Guillermo can't get this, to happen, no, it's it's, it's 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 they're ossified. It's it's a it's a corporate um, victim that yeah. uh, no one will see this movie. Which they paid for. They made. Who are, you know, someone, they're waiting they for someone to die, though, right? Is that it? Like someone's oh, going to die and going to come back? No, I, think, I don't think so. I think Joe is right. It's almost like the sayer of the law in Planet <laughs> of the Apes is <laughs> holding is holding the a copy of the movie and is saying. I mean, it came out ever so briefly on iTunes for about thirty. Yes, no, I grabbed it. Yeah, yeah. I bought it two times, and uh, and and I have it, but. And obviously, I have it on the BFI edition and this and that. But uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a, it's a shame. It's a, the book is fascinating. The demons of the demons of Lou Dunbar. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Great book. Uh, but but the movie has a certain energy uh, that is that I think is the the best other than Curse of the Werewolf is the best suited casting of Oliver Reed <laughs> and his. Is sweaty vibration as an no, he's, he's I'm, I'm going to stand up for Bill Sykes in Oliver because he was my first. I first like Bill Sykes. Sykes. He's so good in that. What you were saying, Joe? I, I, it, 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 it's a loss to cinema that this movie is not available. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's a, it's it's a great movie. Uh, it may have pissed some people off. Obviously, it pissed some people off in very high places. Uh, but it is one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen. Uh, it's beautifully produced, beautifully directed. It's really well cast, and uh, it's a great movie. And uh, it, it's being suppressed. 
That's basically what what's going on. I guess I guess my question is, is, is there somebody who's consciously actively at this point doing that? Or is it just I can't imagine anybody still at the company? I, I think sure. that I think that is almost a forgotten. Nobody remembers why, but they know not to touch it. No, but, but because it, it's been released in England, more or less uh, in a decent way by the VFI and so forth. But uh, like, so it's only DVD. It's not. Um, yeah. No, not, and it's and it's it is in widescreen, and it looks. I I have a, a really great copy on my computer that I managed to get with, which is the longest version I've seen, except that doesn't have the Rainbow Christ sequence in it. Uh, which is, I think, an extra in the VFI uh, thing. I saw um, I saw it in Telluride with the, with Ken Russell in the in the audience. Mm -hmm. I, you know, many years later, he sent me a nice message saying, "I, I like uh, that you're fighting for the movie and this and that." I never had the chance to see him again. I saw him in Telluride. And I I was there with Devil's Wagon, and you know, basically nobody know knew who I was. So I approached. Uh, Ken Russell, I said, oh, Mr. Ken Russell, I, I want to say I'm a huge fan of yours and the devils. And, and he said, he turned to me and said, fuck off. <laughs> might, have had was, a little, might have had a few glasses of wine. That, the time that, was, that. that was my only personal encounter. But what a great but I, know, I, know he, I know he liked that, that, that I, I, I did try to get a release. I, uh, I, think, I think we can always uh, trust in, in ineptitude. To get it released. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, I think that's what happened out, now, right? With iTunes. Movies Unlimited will have it next week. Uh, yes. Oh, yes, please. Um, so that, 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 and then another movie that uh, transformed me, uh, again, at the right age, at the right time, was The World Warrior. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. what happens to me is Mad Max in Mexico had been a massive success. And, and everybody, I had a niece and a little dad son. And I turbocharged it, and I melted parts of the engine that I don't know <laughs> what they even did. But I, what I, I did put a turbocharger on it, uh, and uh, and we saw that movie I don't know 30, 40 times when it came out. I, it was just uh, it, it is it, it is a direct line I think from certain sequences on Duel to that. Sure. Yeah. And 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 then but then the World Warrior just simply blew up into a full um, heavy metal Mobius um, universe that was that I had never seen on film. Because I do believe that uh, visually science fiction uh, changes after, after the comics of heavy metal are published in America with Mobius and Drillé and Casa and everybody. And, and I finally was seeing uh, this, this fully realized world that was just telescopically perfect from the last detail on the set dressing to the composition of the whole world and the dynamic way he shot the the chases to this day if you watch uh that movie it it could have been shot yesterday yeah george has a a, a way of shooting uh, uh, climaxes of, and depths and stuff where he he zooms into uh the um the person's eyes and then the, the eyes have their fake eyes and they blow up for a couple yes. of frames yeah, uh, he, he did it he did it with john lithgow on his twilight zone episode yep. and i had previously seen it in, in road warrior and he said it was it's it's, it's my trademark 
Yeah, he had it. He had it. It's in Mad Max too. It's in Mad Max right before the toe cutter slams. Yeah, it's the toe cutter goes out with the exploding eyeball. Which is which is crazy because if you see that scene, the front of that truck is hand painted on cardboard. (laughs) It's not a real grill. It's just a piece of cardboard with the grill painted. And 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 uh, and and then he pushed the eyes uh, in a in a dummy head with a, I think ground meat. Yeah, uh, he, he called it what the Looney Tunes effect, right? The, yeah, the and it's only on, it's only on for a couple of frames, and it always works great. And and yep. it, and of course, you know, his his most recent Mad Max movie is phenomenal. I mean, it's uh, it's an it's an it's an amazing film. Should but I dare work. say it doesn't have the Looney Tune eyes. <laughs> I, there was so much else going on. I don't know. I <laughs> I, yeah, no, I think he's done with that. He sort of moved past it. That's yeah. really funny. I, yeah, I, I just Lorenzo's stole that. I think I'm working on right for now. all of it. <laughs> I, I just stole that. At, uh, that, in fact, the toe cutters, uh, the shot of the toe cutters from a thing I'm, I'm putting together right now. And I, it just, it's just such a great shot. Yeah, it just makes everything better. <laughs> it, it, it does, and I, I think it's and it's invisible, as, as, as you say. You know, it's like if you don't know, you don't see it. Yeah, is it in Blues Brothers when the hotel explodes and it's? I think John says it's a, it's a cutout or a really simple effect that Ellen Shaw did, uh, and then you see it, and yeah, it, it looks like what it is. But if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, but I think it would be one of those things that if you're a director, it would be hard anytime you're in a situation uh, shooting a certain kind of scene to just go, "Shit, I can't use that. What can I do that's almost as good?" Yeah, that doesn't cost much. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I think I think that uh, you 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 find yourself in those solutions all the time, finding finding those things all the time. And I think when I saw World Warrior, I was I was in Las Vegas, and I I saw it in a mall, and I came out to the scorching heat of the desert, and again for some reason, I knew that some of that filmmaker was now permanently and. In me, mm-hmm. that doesn't again mean right. Just, it's just there are places of worship. Yeah. You find, you, sometimes when you find a movie, you find a church, yeah. and you you go to worship every now and then. You know, and it doesn't have to be a, a movie that is recognized as a masterpiece or not. It just to speak so intimately to you. You know, and and the Road Warrior, which is a masterpiece, may I add, yes, you know, uh, speaks very deeply. Uh, uh, to me, and, and when it happened, and how it happened, and how I, I, I just could not. I, I went back to this has happened to me twice. Once with Alien, mm-hmm. and with Road Warrior. I went back to Mexico and I told them the movie I had seen, and nobody believed me. <laughs> they, said, they said, "You're making this up. Such a movie does not exist." <laughs> I swear, those are both movies. A small group of movies I saw twice in the same day. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, and 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 I remember being so excited for Road Warrior and thinking it couldn't possibly live up to my expectations, and realizing that the movie that was in my expectations is not even close to being as good as Road Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> it's just insane, absolutely. Insane. I think George uh, George has a the most kinetic, uh, and I, I mean the, he's he's also uh, very attuned with the with the. And we were talking about comedy at the beginning of the, oh yeah, you know, and and he knows to the to the last detail and the the tempo and the timing and the, the way he 
those the gags, you know, whether uh, they, they go by and they blow off a tent and there's two people making love under him. No, but the, the, he, he fills it with humor and terror yeah. and thrills, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes. And then, and then the guy, right, his head pops up like, like, like Bugs Bunny or something. Like what he yes. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And, 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 uh, and um, I, 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 I spoke to him once about the, the process of making Mad Max and how there was a point, I think, in which he, he felt so bad about it that he wanted to buy the negative and not release it. And, and I felt like that <clears throat> with Pants Labyrinth. I wasn't. There's, there, there's always a point, though, isn't there? I mean, I find that not always. Just not with always. writing, <laughs> really. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I and the Shrink Pants Labyrinth had been so difficult, and and very very uh, against everything. And I thought, Jesus, uh, this, this, this is. I'm never gonna finish it. It's never. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm never gonna crack it. So it works. I mean, you're talking about in the middle of the editing. Mm. You know? Because quite literally, as we know, by three minutes more or three minutes less, the thing doesn't work. Uh, or a few frames sometimes. And I was in that moment in which this didn't work, that didn't work. And I thought, oh, what if I buy the negative and I don't <laughs> And then George told me that he did get a little lost uh, in, in, in the post of Mad Max and then found, found it and with complete certainty because he shot very 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 much into, to the pieces you know he didn't he, he didn't have any resources so it was shot to be edited almost on camera don't you i mean i <clears throat> joe you've had that moment i'm sure have you, have you not or am i am i is this an well, overshare the moment, the pretty much think, everything i've written i've had to a point now where the moment where you think your movie is unreleasable and you can't yeah. say that sure we yeah, don't yeah. have that yeah I mean, it's nice you get to a point where you know it's just a stage, and you just sort of learn to ignore the emotion. Well, that takes a, that takes a, that takes a couple of uh, yeah. <laughs> you have to go through it a couple of times before you can get to that point and convince yourself that oh no, it's just a moment. I'll, yeah, I'll this is just a thing. Because when it when it hits, it's it's terrifying. I mean, you, yeah. this, I, I've, I've spent everybody's money on this movie, yeah. and it doesn't work, and it's my fault. Yeah, yeah. The, the, but I think I, I think the thing that I I I must envy of the way you you came to direct Joyce to, to have done it through the uh, uh, absolutely uh, factory uh, get it done mentality with Roger Corman. That is such a blessing in many ways. It is a total blessing because not only you may be, you may you may think your movie isn't very good, but it's going to open on a hundred screens next week in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, <laughs> yeah. However, it comes out. <laughs> I think. I think because I think any structure, when when you are a filmmaker that uh, that operate uh, outside outside of any system, you know, uh, you basically uh, handcraft one by one. And and I always admired and and loved. I mean, I I've been an itinerant filmmaker. I shoot one in Spain, one in England, one in mm. uh, Prague. I come back to Mexico. Whatever is needed. And, and I always, uh, you know, when, when I think of uh, King Beaver or Hathaway or, you know, any of the studio filmmakers, I, I, I just think, uh, what, would it, what would it feel to know that you're going to shoot two or three this year or 
uh, and not well, and, to, and to have to accept what you're handed. You yeah, know. yeah. You're, you're Michael Curtis, and you know now you're going to have to make the return of Doctor X. <laughs> you know, which is not in your wheelhouse, <laughs> really. No. But you know, you you have to do it. You know, and your fortunes rise and fall with that, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and you, you could, or you could go on suspension like Betty Davis or somebody like that, and then you know have your career in in, in bumps. Uh, I, would whereas, love to have, I, I would love to do Beyond the Forest anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I would I would accept the, that Ignatius uh, movie, but but I I understand that I I just think uh, there is a there is a there's a resourcefulness that comes from uh, what you say. You're gonna release it no matter what, and I, and I think it, I, I think there's a value there's a there's a value to that as a fearlessness. You know, what is the movie where you felt the most? fear that you that it was if you if you can be candid about it um oh obviously it was piranha because yeah. it was my first solo movie uh, i had shot it out of out of state in texas i came back put it together we didn't know how to do the special effects we didn't have any money uh and it wasn't i i was literally working 24 hours a day at the moviola trying to fix this movie I, I changed the order of the scenes poor john sales when he saw the movie was like what this scene is supposed to be at the beginning and it, it, you know i just i just was i had no faith in it whatsoever and i just kept changing it and uh then finally we had a preview and, and it went well and it was like you know but uh it was, it was i i was convinced i would never work again i thought this was this is it this is my this is my shot you know it's so funny when I, I remember uh, I remember the the day I saw it in Mexico, and I, I absolutely adored it. The moment the moment the Phil Tippett the fishman walks by in the forest, yes. I said, "What? What, what, kind of, what kind of black magic is this?" Well, that was the idea, you know. And it's 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 like it's this kind of movie, folks. <laughs> and, and 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 to to rely on it was Tippett and Robotin, so. Uh, and John Berg and a whole lot of guys from Star Wars, uh, yeah. and uh, and we were making it up as we went along, really, literally, and that's how we made Gremlins too. We made it up as we went along because there's no technology that was, you know, in place to be able to do what it was that you're supposed to do. So you just solve problems all day, which is great. I mean, that's the reason we make movies is to solve problems, but sometimes the problems can be kind of unsolvable. <laughs> well, and this leads me to the I think the last movie that I wanted to talk about today, which is very very different from the others, but that equally, I mean, the first Hitchcock I saw was, I confess, I, I, and it hit me really, really hard because I, I was Catholic or, or on the way to being lapsed, but it was so, so, uh, such a, such a deeply felt movie for me. And, and then I found out that this is a filmmaker that, I mean, I was very young. I, I find out who Hitchcock is and that he works basically putting out a movie a year. Uh, and and I, I find that th that rhythm is fascinating to me, that uh, you have to solve, and in his case, um, masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece uh, of work, and, and you have to solve it. And, and then for me, the, the one that affected me in terms of how beautifully put together it was, and, and I thought this is, again, the the, the elements of this filmmaker are deposited now in my soul. It was notorious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I thought it, it was, it was how, first of all, it took me a while to figure out uh, what 
what was happening in terms of the the way he was telling the story, the resources the resources he was using. Uh, when people dissect um, uh, Hitchcock Hitchcock scene, most often than not, people go to the shower scene or they go to the to the plane scene in North by Northwest or the right. uh, or outside the school and the birds, which are all prodigious pieces of storytelling. But I go to the staircase and the stories, you know, because I say, well, there's a limited point A to point B with a certain number of steps. And he so absolutely beautifully, he cuts to a point of view, the two shots, the wide, uh, the, the, all the strands that need to coincide at the bottom of the stairs are brought together. And, and I remember as a, as a young filmmaker, I, 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 I was counting the steps. I was looking at it. I was going, Jesus, how, how do you do it on the day? So you say to Cary Grant on step six, you're going to look at her. And, <laughs> you were, and, and breaking it down, it was so, so, um, Fascinating for me. Did you did you ever meet Hitchcock, Joe? I never did. Landis did. Landis spent a lot of time with him, but I, I never met him. It, it, well, it, you mentioned the airplane scene. I thought you were going to say the airplane scene in Foreign Correspondent, which is also oh, it's amazing, a great, amazing scene for its time. And and, and 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 let us pause for a moment there and talk about it for a second, because I understand the principle of the drop tank water coming through the window, right through the. Cockpit. Rear screen, yeah. Yeah, rear screen. So they're projecting on the rear screen that is possibly made of paper or something because the water looks like it, yeah. Yeah, but the effect is so incredible. It's amazing. And and it just scenes where you go go into the window of the plane. It's obviously a model plane, and they managed to mat in the people to a point where you can actually go into the plane, kind of a scene that you could easily do now. But at the time, it was really complicated to do. And uh, you know, and if you want to hear, um, if you want to hear Guillermo expound further on, I confess he did a Trailers from Hell episode, which you can true. dial up on your computer. Yes. <laughs> that, that is true. And, but 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 I must concur with you. The foreign correspondent is is really really a masterful film, and and not not one that is invoked as much as the other uh, big and popular uh, titles. That, no, and it's a, it's one of I think one of his best pictures it has so many great scenes, so many set pieces, so many, and as uh, partly William Cameron Menzies was designing it, and there's some amazing visuals in the picture and some amazing sets, um, and it's it's one of my favorite Hitchcock's, and it's also got a great cast. Uh, it, 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 George Sanders is particularly no. good on it. Um, can never go wrong with George Sanders. <laughs> It's just something, I mean, he, he, you know, you talk about all those sort of bravura set pieces that everybody knows, and, and it's almost a problem with him is that there is so much of that, that the pieces, you know, the other greatness gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. Cause yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking of, of dozens of other amazing Hitchcock scenes that make me just as happy as, as North by Northwest or, you know, um, just astonishing. And, and and I think I, I think the, the the final movie of his that did affect me when I was very very young and to me that was for many years the pinnacle of effects movies for me uh, was for many years the bird. Sure. You know, I, 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 again we're talking about me trying to break down. I, I was since I was a very young kid. I was like everybody else. I was animating uh, stop motion and clay in Super 8, 
Oh yeah, and I was doing uh, <clears throat> really bad, really bad uh, uh, mad paintings and really bad scratched laser blasts, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I remember uh, me as a kid uh, seeing a little bit of the rotoscope or seeing a little bit of the layers on the birds, but the execution was back then. There, to me, there were there was no more complex movie than that. Like if you think even about uh, science fiction spectacles that combine model work and mats and flying miniatures and all that, it, it, it really, the birds was even harder because it was in a context of reality. Mm -hmm. It had to embed all of those virtuoso animation, composites, uh, uh, puppets, blah, 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 into, into a seamless uh, blend with reality. And, and, and I was, I, I, Hitchcock and Buñuel both became creatures of imagination to me, almost like uh, fantastic characters. And Buñuel, I almost met the week I was going to meet him. He had the the great idea to die. So oh. I, by a week, oh. by a week I didn't meet him, but um, I had finally a, a, a met. I met. Um, and apprenticed a little bit like a mascot with Gabriel Figueroa, who was the greatest cinematographer in mm -hmm. classical Mexico. He was very good friends with Greg Toland. And he had a classical style. He, he's the one that told me, and I put the good news much later in Nightmare Alley. He's the one that told me, if you want to have the great tones, you have to art direct in green, red, pink, which I didn't do, and, and gold. And, and, um, and, uh, he said, I'll introduce you to Buñuel. Oh. They, they, he had done a, a good amount of the classics with him. And uh, I never met him. Damn. Uh, <laughs> uh, God. Um, well, Guillermo, God, thank you, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it has been such a pleasure. Thanks for taking uh, the time. Yes. and Because I, I, I know you've been doing a lot of stuff lately, uh, you know, tub thumping the movie and, 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 you know, doing interviews and stuff like that. We really appreciate you making the time. Sunday, Sunday is a model painting day. Fantastic. I was going to say, when you were talking about a church, I should mention to our listeners, we are recording this on a Sunday, so it's doubly appropriate. Yeah, this is so the only, and there, there's a model that I can see right now, primed and ready to be painted. It'll be next, next Sunday. Ready to go. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you. And again, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you for the movie. Um, I just, you have no idea as a, as a noir junkie, a pure noir junkie. It's, it's, it made me so happy. Uh, to be sitting in a theater and seeing a new piece of film noir that that was hey, listen, I'm happy to sit in a theater and see a new piece of Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's continue. Let's continue this discussion when Omicron allows us. Omicron. It sounds like a like a science fiction movie. It right? does, yeah. doesn't it? There yeah. was a long movie with that title. It was a science fiction movie. Um, we did have a brief. We did two episodes back at our did. studio. We went back to our studio for two oh, episodes, this is but what then we're COVID doing. came we back. And so, but we are in <laughs> yeah. town, so in, and you're in town, so next yeah. time we could do so it. Let's let's uh, be bold and let's go. The four of us, came included, let's go for a bite somewhere. Uh, uh, when that world exists perfect. again, and I'll give you your Frankenstein blue, right? I like it. And please. <laughs> Please. Oh, we'll we do it. Well, hell, he's good for it. Well done. Yeah. Dinner's we'll on, dinner on me, Blu-rays on you. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs>
Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.